You're listening to the Kitchen Scene Investigator Podcast. Hi there. Hola, hola. Welcome to Kitchen Scene Investigator. I'm your host, Nikki Gerardo. Through this podcast, I mind my experiences in the restaurant business, my crazy culinary school journey to help you learn the ways and language of the pros. So in the spirit of the season and, you know, in the season, chefs have an army of help getting them through the holidays. Why not put together an Ask Me Anything episode and help you get through the holidays? So I put out a call for questions and oh boy, I got some really awesome questions. I'm covering everything from tips on making hollandaise sauce to, you know, how to make a better uh, chocolate souffle, how to keep your, your food hot for your guests. I really had a good time answering these questions and hopefully it will help you get through the holiday because I know it's crazy. I know I see you in the car. You're like, oh, Nikki, you don't even know the half of my crazy. Well, hopefully this episode will, um, I don't know, reveal some morsels of information that uh, can be helpful, could inspire you and, and maybe just plain old simple <laughs> entertain you. Well, enjoy the show. All right. Um, ask me anything on Kitchen Scene Investigator. Let's see. Um, which question do we have first? Okay. We have Lisa in Orlando who has two questions, actually. Let's take a listen. Here's our question. We have company coming over in two hours. What's the best meal that we can prepare if all we have is chicken breast and some vegetables? Ooh, so you only have chicken and vegetables and you have two hours to make a meal. All right, I'm going to make a few assumptions here. Um, The first, I'm going to assume this is not your boss coming over because if it was your boss, you would have made plans. Yeah, maybe. And if this is your boss surprising you, um, I would make reservations. Yeah, that would stress me out way too much. I would just make reservations. But to answer your question about uh, dinner with chicken and vegetables, see, I would opt for big flavor from ingredients and not necessarily from like a complicated technique. And this really goes to the heart of the concept of um, your life menu. And, you know, I preach your life menu, have 20 things that you're really good at and then call it a day. Because with that, um, you're able to, you know, keep a stock pantry and and you have techniques at, at your fingertips. And so in this case, it would be, you know, your favorite chicken dish. And there's a few things about chicken. It's really lean and it dries out really quickly. So I'm praying it's bone-in chicken with skin on it. Yeah pretty please. Um, the first thing I would do is get that chicken in a brine right away, like a 5% salt water solution. I actually like to brine my chicken with salt, sugar, and some smoked paprika. It's so it builds a lot of flavor from the inside out. So brine that chicken for like 20, 30 minutes. And then in terms of the vegetables, okay, so if you're calling from Orlando, the vegetables are there's root vegetables, but since you're since you're the sunshine state, you have gorgeous citrus. So I would make pan roasted vegetables that take advantage of all that gorgeous citrus and say build flavor from something like a citrus balsamic glaze. Something not too sweet, but like sweet savory where by cooking 
or roasting the vegetables in the balsamic, the balsamic will, the flavor will become a little bit more complex and caramelize some. So, ooh, yeah, that sounds delicious for the vegetables. And also, this is where some some knife skills can come into play um, for presentation. You can chop the vegetables on a bias. You know, just remember that you don't want to crowd the pan and maybe chop the vegetables on the bias so it looks beautiful and um, you have nice, even pieces. And if you're roasting root vegetables, they tend to roast at a similar pace. I wouldn't combine vegetables that have a lot of water content like zucchini or your or like a cabbage. I would stick to root vegetables and citrus. Yeah, that sounds really good. And then for the chicken, once you brine it, dry it off really, really well. Give it some nice, um, you know, seasoning, salt, pepper, rosemary, maybe. So give it a good sear. And then you can even finish that in the oven in the same pan that you seared it in uh, if the pan uh, is, is able to take the heat from the oven. And so once the chicken is, you know, comes to temperature, so 165 degrees, remove the chicken from the pan and then deglaze the pan, meaning like use like a white wine or chicken stock to uh, lift the fond, the sticky pieces that, you know, are on the bottom of of the pan to create like a pan sauce or even like a pan gravy. And that way you can have like a a through flavor with your meal and it doesn't have to be that complicated. You just create this sauce that you're going to drizzle over both your chicken and your vegetables. And the pro tip I would give you in this case is when in doubt, strain. (laughs) Strain the sauce. It could be through like a fine mesh strainer and then reduce the sauce a little bit over like a medium heat so that you concentrate the sauce and then maybe throw in a dab of butter to give it some viscosity. And yeah, that is what I would recommend you do if you only have two hours and chicken and vegetables. Sounds delicious to me. Enjoy that. All right, so Lisa has a second question. Let's take a listen. We're having trouble making hollandaise sauce. Can you give us some tips on the best way to make it? Ooh, hollandaise sauce. I love me some hollandaise sauce. Yeah, it it took me a while to to, uh, learn how to make it. So hollandaise sauce is, is of course, one of the five uh, French mother sauces. The flavor is rich. It has like a creamy texture, buttery, with a hint of lemon or vinegar. depends on on how you make it. Uh, It's the kind of sauce you see on like eggs benedict or asparagus, and it's the, the base sauce for for Bernays, which is really, really popular for steaks in uh, steak uh, steakhouses. So hollandaise is basically an emulsion, which is a preparation of two liquids that usually don't stay together. But through agitation, uh, in this case, whisking and an emulsifying agent, the sauce comes together in a stable emulsified sauce. So you make hollandaise sauce by whisking together egg yolks with a little bit of um, water or 
I like to do lemon water to form the sauvignon, which is the base for the sauce, um, which is not to be mistaken with like sauce sauvignon, which is used in pastry. And then you whisk in clarified butter, you know, just drizzled in little at a time and you whisk, whisk, whisk aggressively to make this rich, beautiful sauce. But so much, oh my goodness, so much can go wrong with making hollandaise sauce. So here, here are like three or four top tips to help things go so right with making hollandaise sauce. All right, first choose the right equipment. Of course, work with a metal bowl. Uh, metal retains just a hint of hit, uh, just a hint of heat to keep the butter um, melted, and of course, a French whisk. A French whisk uh, has that long shape, uh, like a long elongated shape with lots of tines, which make it perfect for agitating and emulsifying. In the beginning, I used to use a balloon uh, whisk, but it just didn't have enough tines to to agitate the emulsion and create uh, the sauce. I like to do the Sauvignon over um, like gentle heat in a, a double boiler and then take it off the heat to whisk in the warm clarified butter. I don't like to leave it on the double boiler because it's just too hard to control the temperature and it's very easy to to overcook it like right away. And then the other tip I would say is, and I think this is really super important, and that is drizzling in the clarified butter in a faint stream, but a constant faint stream. And I like to drizzle in the butter to the side of the wall of the of the bowl. I don't like to drizzle it into the middle. And then you're whisking like crazy. Um, the action of the whisk that I have a lot of success with is whisking back and forth, but whisking really, really quickly. And think of the movement as if you were like scratching out a word with a pencil, like east to west, um, not like whipping in air. Um, you you want to agitate the emulsion so that you build the sauce. Um, so those would be my my three tips, like control the temperature by taking it out of the double boiler, drizzling in the the clarified butter in a in a in a constant stream, but not overwhelming the the sauce with too much at one time, and and whisking aggressively. <laughs> oh, and one last thing, if you see, no two last things, if you see butter starting to form around the edge of the sauce, that means it's about to break. So that gives you some something to look at. And if your sauce does start to break, um, I would drop in like just a little bit of of uh, cool water, like say maybe a tablespoon, and then whisk aggressively again. That should bring it together. All right. I hope that's helpful in um, making hollandaise sauce. And I recommend that you make some hollandaise sauce for crab benedict. Ooh, that sounds so good. Yumbelina. All right. Post a picture, will ya? <laughs> okay, let's see. Our next question. Our next question is from Vermont. All right, let's take a listen. Hi, Kitchen Scene Investigator. I'm calling from Vermont. I enjoy your podcast very much. I usually make a French toast casserole on special occasions. How can I step it up a bit? <laughs> oh boy, it sounds like my listener in Vermont is <laughs> exhausted from getting ready for the holidays. Oh, the poor guy. Oh my goodness. All right. 
So you want to take your French toast casserole to the next level. Um, I'm envisioning um, a one-pan French toast casserole, you know, something fluffy made with challah bread and a caramel sauce on top. So, okay, so that's that's my vision for what you're talking about. If you want to take a casserole of this style to the next level, I would actually I would actually borrow from what pastry chefs are doing. And that is taking the technique of incorporating a savory ingredient into a traditional, traditionally sweet application. In this case, I would recommend, let's see, I would recommend weaving in some bacon or guanciale, which is like cured and smoked pig jowls, which is Italian kind of bacon, into your casserole. Oh, that sounds so delicious. Just make sure that uh, you render down the fat from the bacon or the guanciale so you don't get like these super chewy bits that are like floating in fat. And then let's see, and then you can add so like maybe some toasted and um, and candied crushed pecans on top. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that sounds good. Yeah, that's what I would do to to bring your French toast casserole to the next level. And again, please take some pictures. It just sounds so good. All right. So next question. Let's see. Uh, Okay. We have two questions from Janice in Miami. Let's see. um, Let's take a listen. Yes. I want to know what is the best strategy to keep all of the dishes warm so that when it's time to serve the meal, You don't have to run back and forth to the microwave with your guests' individual plates. Ooh, hot plates. Yeah, that's that's a good one, not only for the holidays, but I mean, I would even say for your, your weekday dinners. It's just such a damn challenge to get everything done at the at the same time so that by the time you're, you know, reaching the finish line of, of dinner, that things are hot. My recommendation would be copy two two things that they do in the restaurants. And that would be number one have a cooking schedule. You only have so many burners, right? And you only have so much space in your oven. So plan out what you're going to cook first, second, and third, and plan out what is temperature sensitive. So whatever is temperature sensitive, meaning that you need to cook to keep it in the oven, then you need to know when your protein can come out and you can put it on the stovetop and let it rest. And then you're going to switch in your sides into the oven and keep them warm. So having that schedule allows you to know that you'll have enough time to get stuff back into the oven to keep it warm. The second recommendation that I would make is to get holding stations. There are some wonderful holding stations like Keep Your Food Hot appliances you can get. I like Bed Bath & Beyond or any of the big box stores that allow you to table side keep food hot. So not only do you have the opportunity to keep food hot in your oven because you have a good schedule, but you can put this um, appliance on your tabletop so that your food is hot when it's close by to you. And that's similar to the restaurant. Uh, that's similar in the restaurant business business where they have like the hotel pans that, you know, keep food hot. So it's close to them when they go to plate the food and it's still hot. So those would be my recommendations on keeping your food hot. If you want an example of what like a 
what a production sheet looks like, go to my website. I did a blog post on how to create a production sheet. And I'll tell you this, folks, yours does not need to be as in-depth and complicated as as mine are. I just, I happen, you know, <laughs> have gone to culinary and have seen, you know, how the restaurants do it. But at least it's a, it's a starting place for you to see, oh, okay, well, this is what I need to do first. This is what I need to do second. And this will empower me to have f- hot food by the time I'm done. And the production sheets are, you can print them and also put some blank ones on there. So hopefully that helps you out. All right, let's hear her second question. What's the best way to be sensitive to guests of different faiths at your holiday meal? Okay, so being sensitive to other faiths. Let's see. Um, my recommendation would be less for a really orthodox traditional celebration where the food has like a specific role, a pivotal role in the stories that go along with this type of celebration and the meaning of, of those celebrations. So my recommendation would be more towards like a modern interpretation of a potluck dinner. And what I would do is I would invite your friends to bring over a dish that is uh, that represents their country or represents their culture or is reminiscent of their upbringing, something that has a lot of meaning for them. Uh, <laughs> but I would be really specific about where in the menu you would like their dish to plug in. So be really specific about if it's going to be an appetizer or if it's going to be a starch, if it's going to be a side, if it's if it's going to be a main. And so that way you have all bases covered. I saw a beautiful interpretation of this or a beautiful version of this last year. A friend of mine invited me to uh, like this multicultural dinner and uh, she presented a vegetarian Lebanese kibbeh and, and that was presented, you know, Know, on this beautifully arranged table with a ton of food from all over the world. And next to the kibbeh was Ethiopian injera bread and, and a stew. And then a vegan Angelino brought like beautiful vegetables and, and spiced hummus. It was gorgeous. And there were so many different cultures like represented on the table. But what I, I noticed that really worked, and I think this is the trick if you are going to do this, is have dishes that are composed, like the dish in and of itself itself, when you take one scoop out, it's a whole course. And that and that way, you, you're not like building, you're not building a dish at the table with different pieces, like you want it to be a whole dish in and of itself. I think that that's a great way to to be respectful of other faiths and be inclusive of other faiths. And at the same time, delegate, <laughs> delegate some of the responsibilities. So you're not completely overwhelmed. And, um, and then y'all, can sit at the table and enjoy a, a lovely meal together. Yeah, I think that, that that's my recommendation. Okay, let's see. Now we have a question from um, New Jersey. Okay, let's take a listen. Hi, Kitchen Scene Investigator. I'm calling from New Jersey. Love, 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 love your podcast, and I can't wait to hear more. So I'm calling because I could use some help with my planning and my menu. Um... I want to make it a little bit more sophisticated and I'm having a hard time because, you know, the little people in my life, they, they want things like chicken nuggets and mac and cheese. And I don't know, should I leave them on the menu? Should I take them off the menu? You know, I, I, I want to have a nice, elegant Christmas dinner. So can't wait to hear your advice. Oh, yeah. So an elegant dinner with the kids. (laughs) Yeah. I've seen this not only at home, 
but also in the restaurant business. Sometimes it's really hard to um, elevate a simple dish or peasant food. I'm thinking of um, of like mashed potatoes or like brown food. It's it's hard to present these in such a way that it looks elegant, but it's not impossible. I'm thinking of three ways that you can elevate these dishes. Number one, of course, through ingredients. The second way you can elevate it is through cooking style, and the third way that you can elevate it is actually through presentation and elevating. Uh, simple food is actually a trend that you see around the country or frankly around the world. Chefs are elevating traditional like peasant food through superior ingredients, through through more um, sophisticated cooking styles, and especially through presentation. Presentation is such a big part of it. But for a family dinner, remember that getting the family involved is part of the process. And food has such deep meaning for a blended family or or for kids. And in this case with your dinner, I would I would draw some boundaries and choose one of the dishes, right? In, in this case, you actually can can elevate mac and cheese beautifully. And the, the first thing I'm thinking of is is to use like gorgeous, uh, delicious, robust cheese. Uh, one of the recommendations that I would make would be substitute <laughs> your Velveeta. Although I'm not mad at Velveeta. So all you Velveeta fans, don't, don't send me hate mail. What I would use in place of Velveeta would be like a really good aged melting cheese, something like a Gruyere, something like an Asiago. And those are, are pretty easy to find, but you definitely want a robust aged cheese because aged cheese um, doesn't break in a sauce uh, like a young cheese. And then the second recommendation I would be is to introduce them to the secret weapon of Mornay sauce. Yeah, Mornay sauce. That's M-O-R-N-A-Y, which is basically a bechamel with a white sauce with cheese added to it. And my my secret weapon, which is uh, whisking in egg yolks. Oh my God, it's so delicious. It's it's something that I learned in the restaurant business. And when I came across it, I was like, what is happening here? This is so good. Also, using the Mornay sauce will allow you to brown the top of the mac and cheese, like those little crusty bits on top. So yeah, Mornay sauce is such a secret weapon when it comes to mac and cheese. And then this is really the big one, and that is presentation. Put the mac and cheese in a beautiful display pan that you can put in the oven and warm and brown. I love going to flea markets or to swap meats and or, or to like vintage stores and find like a gorgeous plate that has a lid on it. And that way, uh, you know, you can pre- present the mac and cheese in a, in a beautiful fashion. They get a, you know, a piece of their childhood that that's still that really means something to them. And everybody can participate in the process. And then of course, refuse, <laughs> refuse to refuse to to serve on paper plates, even though they're kids. And it's important to show kids the dining process, right? The same way that you want to expose kids kids to adult language, you want to expose kids to adult dining practices and having them eat from proper plates and from proper silverware, I think goes a long way to getting them into the fold about what it's like to dine as an adult. And I think that 
This way you can have a really, yeah, you can have a really successful family dinner. It could be elegant. I think I would draw the line of uh, no chicken fingers. Yeah, that's where I would draw the line. All right. Oh, I hope you have a great holiday dinner. Oh, look. Oh, wow. Um, It's my first ever guest, Ariane. Uh, she called in with a question. Um, Let's see. Let's see what Ariane is asking. Hello, Kitchen Scene Investigator. This is Ariane calling from Los Angeles. Uh, I just want to say first, I love the podcast. I've enjoyed every episode. And thank you again so much for including me in episode one. It was such an honor. So my question for you is, if you're going for the holidays, as many of us do to visit friends or family or to like an Airbnb or a vacation rental situation, where maybe you don't know the kitchen very well, where you're going to prepare your holiday meal or meals, what are some of your go-to dishes that you can do with sort of minimal equipment and maybe ingredients that are easy to find at the grocery store, no matter what kind of stores you have access to, whether you're, um, you know, even if you're away from a big city and don't have access to a lots of different kinds of ingredients that you might have in your home pantry? Thanks so much. Bye. That's such a good question, Ariane. Yeah, um, Airbnbs, they can be like lifesavers and really make traveling a lot of fun and um, economical. Uh, but they could be, they in terms of cooking, they can be disastrous. Actually, where I would start would be with booking the right Airbnb. I am such a big fan of reaching out to a Airbnb host and, and figuring out what exactly is at the house. I love getting pictures of what exactly exactly is in the kitchen. So like I have an idea of, of what I'm walking into, but that's not always the case, right? We don't always have the flexibility of having a host that communicates with us. And, or sometimes, you know, we're, we're stranded at a hotel and we literally have nothing, which is so frustrating and been there, done that. It's, it, it could be a mess, but I do have two go-to approaches when it comes to these type of scenarios. The first approach that I lean on is food that does not need fire and food that doesn't need decent knives. Because, I mean, let's be truthful here. Most places aren't going to have like beautifully sharpened Japanese knives, right? And that makes me think sometimes maybe I should travel <laughs> with my sharpening stone. So my first approach is, you know, to have dishes that I like that need no fire. And the second approach is to make one pot meals. Most places will have one pot um, and then you can stretch that out from there. That said, I'm a big fan of building a meal from um, from a salad bar. Uh, most grocery stores have one and they have, you know, ready-made components where you can, let's say, build a beautiful Italian style sandwiches, you know, from sliced mozzarella and, and tomato and, you know, most salad bars have uh, like a dressing or a balsamic. And then you can fancy that up with some marinated artichokes or olives from the olive bar. And bread is everywhere. So you can build a delicious sandwich with items that you find at a salad bar. You can also build a, a vegetable plate um, because you're going to find like grilled vegetables or fresh vegetables. And it's, it's very easy 
to build a plate like that. Or you can even build a cheese and charcuterie plate from a salad bar um, and then just pick up some jam and mustard. That's one of my favorite uh, go-tos. I like to build wraps. I like to build cold or hot wraps, uh, breakfast wraps or dinner wraps with what's at a salad bar. Going this route is especially good if it's the summer and it's hot. Nobody wants to be cooking at an Airbnb when it's hot and sticky out. No. Uh, no. Um, and if the Airbnb has like a blender, um, then you're in smoothie territory. And, you know, that couldn't be any easier with, you know, some fruit, some frozen vegetables, if you don't have ice in the freezer. Um, yeah. So then you're in, in smoothie territory. The second go-to is to make a one-pot meal. And in this case, I'm talking about like a like braised beef uh, that can be stretched ac- across a few meals. Every store has aromatics like garlic, onions, celery, carrot, and red wine. I pray <laughs> that your grocery store has red wine. And then just make a, a simple braise. And you can use that braise over a pasta, that, again, that you can make in that in that one pot. Um, You can serve that braise over ready-made uh, like brown rice. You can stuff that braise into like taco shells. And it's easy to find like, you know, tomato and, and cabbage and shredded cheese. It's doing a braise in, in one pot that you can stretch out is such a godsend. And let's... Oh, another another go-to that I like relying on is rotisserie chicken. I'm such a fan. They're juicy, they they're well seasoned, they're readily available. And if the idea of only doing like a salad and a rotisserie chicken, if the idea of just doing that is too boring for you, I'm such a big fan of using like jars of, of preserves or like fresh herbs into like a wonderful glaze for chicken. Like one of my favorite things to do is to use apricot preserves with like maybe a little bit of fresh sage or a spice blend and warming that up, chopping up the the spices and and making a really nice glaze. That's such an easy and delicious go-to. So I hope that helps. Happy traveling. I know you travel a lot, so maybe you can uh, do one of these at your next Airbnb. All right. Now we have, let's see, we have a question from Kim in Florida. Let's take a listen. Hi, Nikki. It's Kim. My holiday cooking question is, what's the secret to a great chocolate souffle? Ooh, chocolate souffles. Yummy, yummy. Um, I think this is this is like a two-part question. Um, part flavor and then part preparation. Chocolate souffles, you know, they're gorgeous. They're a gorgeous dessert to present to your guests. And, and, and they're really elegant. But for traditional flour-stabilized chocolate souffles... You know, they, they require immediate construction and baking, and that will take you out of like your dinner party fun. I actually just discussed chocolate souffles with, uh, Chef Andra Shiri, the, the executive pastry chef from Kraft here in Los Angeles. Um, actually that episode will be, uh, dropping next month. So keep an ear out for that one. And we both agreed that, um, you really have to start with high quality chocolate, both for flavor and for texture. And then in terms of preparation, consider using the um, the pastry cream and whipped egg whites method, where you make the chocolate pastry cream, and then you fold in stiff peak egg whites. And that mixture actually can hold in the fridge or it can actually hold in the fridge for a few hours. And, and that will free you up to enjoy your guests. Um, 
and it will hold in the freezer for a week, actually. And when you're ready to go, you know, you pop them in the oven and voila. I also recommend uh, pre-plating the souffle plate. Like however, which way you're going to present the souffle, do it in, in, in advance. Like put the sauce in a little ramekin, put it on the plate. Um, I would even put the dessert spoon on the plate uh, so that when your souffle is ready to go, because, you know, the souffle will will collapse quickly. Um, you're not looking for different pieces, you know, to put the to put the plate together. It'll make it quick. It'll look elegant, and you'll know that you won't forget anything. So, some of the brands of chocolate that we really really like, and and you can get these chocolates online. Um, some of them are relatively easy to find, you know, if you have a Whole Foods around or, but you can order these online. The brands are Valrana, um, Gittard, that's G-U-I-T-T-A-R-D, um, Sch- uh, Schaffenberger, and my absolute favorite, which is letterpress chocolate. Um, so hopefully that helps bring your chocolate souffle game to the next level. Enjoy, Kim. Thanks for sending in the question. Okay, and now we have a question from Jesse. Let's take a listen. Hi, Nikki. This is Jesse. I have a question for you. I am having a hard time adjusting um, baking using, I went from using a convection oven for many years, and now I'm using a regular oven. And every time I've used this regular oven, I always burn my cookies or anything that I am baking. How do I, how can I avoid burning the bottoms of my cookies while using this convection, the, the regular oven? I've never had the problem with a convection oven. It cooked super easy, twice as fast, but now I don't know how to adjust going from a convection oven to a regular oven. So I need your help with that. Okay. Bye. Oh, yeah. I'm a fan of convection ovens. I really came to love them in culinary school. And uh, and I know that uh, the chefs and the pastry chefs in, in the restaurants, they love working with them because it really makes cooking time quick for for certain types of plates. But for those of you do, that don't know what convection ovens are, basically they function by circulating hot air. And in most like retail ovens or a scaled down version of an industrial oven, it's a fan that circulates hot air for quicker cooking. Convection is great for shorter, not tall desserts like cookies, but it's not good for deep batter desserts like cakes or muffins because the circulating heat will cook the outer layer of your dessert faster. It will dehydrate the the outer layers of your dessert faster. So it's it's great for, you know, short desserts like cookies. If you're used to cooking with convection, um, you're probably used to cook, uh, faster cooking times and a, and a flexibility of where you can put the rack in the oven because the circulating air will help cook things evenly. With a regular oven with radiating heat, it will be hotter closer to the source. So what you want to do is you want to place the rack in the center of the oven. And then what I would do is I would adjust your cooking time. So with radiating heat, you would have to say increase your cooking time by 25% because I think that with uh, convection ovens, you reduce your cooking time by 25%. So the 
That would be my two recommendations. Increase your cooking time, place the rack in the middle of the oven, and and I think that, that that'll go a long way in uh, you adjusting to um, a regular oven. I'm having such a good time answering these questions because I get using my noodle. Um, okay, let's see if I can use my noodle to uh, answer the next question. So now we have a question from Jill. Let's take a listen. Hello, this is Jill from LA, and my question is, since I am not an amazing cook and I am hosting my first Christmas with family and friends, what is a simple meal to prepare, cook, and serve without making me overwhelmed, yet the outcome is extremely delicious? Ooh, hosting a holiday dinner. Oh my God. Oh, I know. I, I, I remember the first few times that I hosted a holiday dinner. I, I just, I love to cook for people and it, it really just makes me so happy. But I had, I had no idea what I was doing. I, it felt like everything was coming and going at the same time. Um, you know, people were hungry and, and the food wasn't even near done. And I was the only one cooking. I, I just remembering it now is like, like I feel my heart, my heart beating quickly. And it was just, it was so overwhelming. And then, you know what? Over the years, I just, I got my act together and I reined in all that craziness with some good old fashioned planning. But that didn't happen overnight. This came from practice. This came from culinary school. And definitely this came from working in the restaurant business. And I know that I've said this a thousand times. The way to not feel overwhelmed is to plan the work, then work the plan. It's as simple as that. It's exactly what chefs do at a restaurant, and it really sets you up for success. My second recommendation to having a a meal that's delicious and not feeling overwhelmed is, you know, to start with a simple, simple, but delicious delicious menu. Take into account how many guests are coming over and plan out and plan out a menu with one star dish and say two or three sides that are large batch, you know, large batch format and don't require too too many steps or too much fussing around because that will stress you out and it's just not fun. It's not fun to feel that way. And then in terms of a star dish and I, and I got this from from the chefs at restaurants. I love the idea of a crown rack of lamb. It looks so stunning and it's actually really easy to cook. For the sides, I would do like ready-made polenta that you doctor it up with a little bit of cream and butter and then you top that with, let's say, sautéed mushrooms um, with some fresh rosemary because I'd also use fresh rosemary on on the crown roast. And then honestly, I would like assign a side or two to a few of your other guests and like, (laughs) voila, a gorgeous meal where you're only really committed to cooking two items that look stunning. And then outsource dessert, start with the cheese and charcuterie board. And you know, that that kind of menu couldn't be any easier. But let me tell you why I'm recommending the rack of lamb. First of all, it's easy to cook because the meat is uniform. It's not like, it's all ribs, right? So it's not like a, a turkey that has light meat and dark meat and they cook at a different temperature. And it's just such, it's really hard to, to get that breast meat, you know, not to dry out. 
And you, you can get the rack from a butcher. When you get it from the butcher, like all the bones are clean. The meat is trimmed evenly and there's even amount of ribs. It's easy to figure out what I'm saying, how much protein you'll need because it, it's two ribs for per person. And and usually the rack comes with, with an even amount of ribs. The first tip I want to share is that use linen twine instead of cotton. It's so much easier like to make the knots when you're turning the ribs into like the circular roast. It doesn't soak up the juices like cotton twine does. And it doesn't cook into the meat like cotton twine does. And it's easier to remove. When you go to remove cotton twine, a lot of times it will pull some of that beautiful crust with it. So use linen twine. And then in terms of roasting, Oh, I love, I love the method of roasting a, a crown roast in a bunt cake pan. And the reason I love this, one, it holds the rack in place, both, you know, through the, the seasoning process where, or when you're tying it together, it holds the rack in place in a perfect circle. And then when you're roasting it, it's the perfect vessel to keep the lamb in place and in that beautiful formation. But at the bottom, it, it's where it accumulates the juices. So it, that shape of the, of the pan helps with braising the lamb a little bit and it cooks easily. It collects the juices easily in the pan. It it just, it makes the whole process smooth. And also when you put lamb in a bunt pan, let's say in the refrigerator to, to marinate overnight, it keeps everything in place. It collects juices. I just love that method. And then finally for the the rub for the lamb. My favorite is like a rosemary with um, some crushed garlic, a little salt pepper. Yeah, that's it. As simple as that. I learned from restaurants to like just just let the main flavors shine through and just not complicate things. So if you're using a little bit of like rosemary and garlic on the lamb and then you're sauteing your mushrooms that you're going to put over the polenta in a little bit of rosemary, you know, like the flavors are simpatico. It's, it, I mean, it couldn't be any easier. But I know if, if you're hosting for the first time and you've never made a sauce and you're like, you know what, Nikki, I... I can handle roasting, but this sauce business, it's just way out of my league. You know what? Here's a hack. If you're uncomfortable making the sauce, use like a mango salsa or like a a sweet chutney that you find at the store. Yeah. Just use like a mango salsa or a sweet chutney you find at the store. In terms of the mango salsa, you just let it come up to like room temperature so it's not really cold against the meat. And then with like a with a chutney, like an apricot chutney, just melt that down a little bit over low heat and doctor it up with a little bit of rosemary and you have an instant sauce um, that you can use with lamb. Lamb goes so well with like sweet, savory-ish kind of sauces. So if you don't want to make a sauce, then hack it up part of the meal and get it from the grocery store. You will feel so good about yourself for just leaning into, you know what? I'm going to roast the rack of lamb. I'm going to make the mushrooms and then my friends are going to help. And, and then you really will feel feel good about yourself. And that and that's what you want. I mean, just keep it simple and have, you know, have your friends chip in. And, and then the last recommendation that I w- would make, and, and this is what I say about almost any kind of food that you want to keep simple, present it on a 
gorgeous plate. Yep, just present it on a gorgeous plate and that will go such a long way to making your meal put together because as a first-time host, you not only want a delicious dinner, but you want it to look pretty. You know, you you put all that all that work into it and you want it to look nice. So let pretty and um, statement pieces like statement plates, you know, do, do the work for you. So there, rather than uh, making it complicated and having all these steps, you know, focus on the star dish, focus on, you know, large format sides and get people involved. Yeah, there you go. Voila. Good luck, Jill. Okay, so now let's see. We have a question from April. Let's listen to that question. Hi, this is April. I'm calling from Venice Beach, California, and I'm wondering, I'm trying to cook a tri-tip roast, and should I marinate it before I roast it? And if so, with what? Ooh, I love me some tri-tip. Oh, yeah. I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm such a fan. Tri-tip is beefy. It's it's uh, lean. And it's it's a great canvas for a marinade. So tri-tip in some places, uh, if you have a hard time finding it, because it, it can be hard to find, it's also called um, bottom sirloin butt. So tri-tip from the bottom of the sirloin and sirloin tips from the top of the sirloin, just you know, so you know what the difference is. The tri-tip, let's see, the, the shape of it is it's like this elongated triangle. And it, you usually find them in pound and a half to like three pounds per cut. It's starting to become more popular, but it was really hard to find because there's only one tri-tip per beef side. And butchers, they didn't want to showcase something that they didn't have in abundance or that they had a lot of that they could sell. But it's really starting to become more and more popular. Okay, so in terms of the marinade, you know, I love me a classic red wine marinade. But I had a twist at the end of the cooking process. I love to add a dollop of cooked Spanish style sofrito or recaito to the pan juices when I'm making the reduction sauce. Sofrito and recaito, they're just fancy words for cooking bases and they add depth of flavor. And you know what? I totally cheat. I buy Goya Sofrito or Goya Recaito when I'm super busy and I don't have the time to make it from scratch. And, And what can I say? Like, their stuff is good. So I rely on it. And I'm not ashamed to say that I know how to cut corners and still make my food delicious. Um, okay, so the the components of a marinade, so you have the acid, you have the herbs and spices, and you have your aromatics. Some chefs love to, you know, add oil. I do not. Some of my go-to marinades are made with Zinfandel because it's my favorite. And it's a, a relatively low acid wine. And then I add some carrots, leeks, smashed garlic, parsley, thyme, and rosemary. It's just as simple as that. And one thing I learned, it, it, this is such an important recommendation. If anything, remember this, cook off the alcohol and cool it before you make the marinade. Alcohol does not tenderize the meat. The acid in the wine and cooking actually tenderizes the meat. And so what happens with the alcohol in wine is it starts to it starts to have like a burning reaction. It starts to actually like cook the outside of the meat and it imparts like this funky texture and flavor. So definitely cook off the alcohol and allow the acid and the cooking to tenderize the meat. And again, remember to use a low acid wine 
so that you get like the great flavor without the alcohol burning on the edges. So you want to cook off the alcohol. Remember that. So there you go, April in Venice Beach. That is my recommendation for a marinade. Oh, one last thing. I like to marinate a tri-tips for like eight to 12 hours, maximum 24 hours, you know, longer than that. It's going to be, it's, it gets a little gross and a little mushy, but okay. Voila. A delicious tri-tip. Enjoy and let me know how it goes. Okay, and so finally, we have a question that was written in, sent in via the website, and it says, this is from Vicky in San Diego. I want to know how I can throw a birthday party for my son for his fifth birthday, along with a bunch of other little five-year-olds, with food that's healthy, that isn't over-processed, and with decorations on a budget. His third birthday party was a big success, but I was overwhelmed and felt really stressful. Help me. Okay. What I'm sensing here is parent shaming for, you know, how much you you spend on your kid's birthday party. I have two recommendations for this. Number one, stop feeling as if the money you spend on your kid's birthday is more important than the actual experience of spending time with your son and creating something special because it really is about the time you spend together. The second thing that I would recommend, actually, I'm thinking of three things. So the second thing that I would recommend is choose a theme that has an experiential element to it. So whether it is an action figure or a a holiday or a character, choose something that involves action. So you can build all these things for them to do and things for them to play with that has to do with one character. You don't have to have like a bouncy house and you don't have to have a pony. You can build out a lot of fun experiences that don't cost a lot of money, but will be memorable because it involves the kids and it involves the kids in play. So that would be my second recommendation. And then my third recommendation would be both on the food side and on the drink side, go to large format food that's healthy and signature drinks that are healthy that you can put in like a beautiful dispenser rather than focusing on appetizers that have a lot of different steps to it. You can use ingredients that you can do for the kids and then do an upscale version of that for adults. But that's what I would do. I would I would do a party that's focused on experience versus consumerism. And I would do large format food and cocktails. At the end of the day, like I said, it's about spending time with your kid and draw the line at parent shaming. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to your kid. Um, he just wants your attention. He just wants to have fun. So I would say chill. And that's what I would do for his uh, fifth birthday party. All right, that brings me to the close of my very first Ask Me Anything. I really, I really have had a good time answering these questions. I, I don't know if, if you can tell out there, but I feel, <laughs> I feel like I have smoke coming out of my ears because I, you know, I went into like my experiences in school and and I I feel like I got to use um, all of my knowledge to share with you. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Like the other podcasts, I will post show notes with links on my website 
kitchenscenevestigator.com. You just go to the site and you'll see a tab on the upper right-hand corner that says show notes. As I mentioned in the beginning of, of the season, I cover all production costs. This podcast is advertiser-free entertainment. And if you love what you're hearing, please make a donation towards production costs. You can you can do it on the website. There's a button at the bottom of the website that says PayPal, and then you can donate from there. So if you love what you're hearing and you want to hear more and you want to contribute to production costs, please donate. If you love what you're hearing and you have topics that you want me to cover, be in touch. Shoot me a note through the website or shoot me an email. I love hearing your feedback and actually getting feedback helps the podcast be discovered. It helps the ranking on on Google search or whatever search you go through. So it's really, really helpful. And then finally, I will post a trailer for season two, the 2020 podcast episodes, and it will have a sneak peek into some of the awesome guests I have lined up, shows that I've already recorded. It's going to be a new year, a new decade, new skills. So be on the lookout for that. And Happy holidays. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. It really means a lot to me. So I will see you in the new year and the new decade. Bye.